If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, "'The voice of God and not a man!' Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to talk about fighting today. Who likes to fight? Anyone? Anyone like to fight? Um, Good. No one likes to fight. That's good. Um, uh, Hey, so, you know, as I heard, as I read this story and reflected on this story, I just, I felt like the thing that my mind kept going back to was uh, what, just as a leadership team and as a church, we felt like and believed that God had really put on our hearts at the beginning of this year. If you remember, at the start of 2019, 
we just, we believed that God was calling us to make war, right? To go, to bring the fight to the enemy, to, to, to uh, share more courageously, to pray more persistently, to press in, to worship louder, uh, to share the gospel, to, to, train, our, to train up uh, how we can t- share our faith. We just, we just felt this, we believed that there was this call to make war. And then uh, right after that, uh, we just started seeing people drop like flies going to the hospital. And uh, many of you, uh, sorry. We're gonna try this. Many of you, oh, that's better. Um, many of you may remember uh, and know Vicki Mowry. Vicki Mowry's uh, one of our leaders at our city location. She's married to, to Larry Mowry, and she's impacted many of you. If you don't know her, uh, Larry and Vicki are just pillars in our church. They're a part of Jubilee City location. And, uh, and at the beginning of the year, um, Vicki was hospitalized. She uh, woke up one day and rapidly lost movement in her body, started experiencing paralysis in her legs, and uh, we found out shortly after that that she was diagnosed with something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, if you don't know, it's basically this disease that attacks your body and it works its way from your feet up and, uh, and you, go, you, you go paralyzed. And she uh, went from her waist to her stomach to her chest and it got to the point to where she could not move her arms, she could not move her legs, she could not reposition herself and uh, she could not scratch her face. In fact, they needed machines to even help her breathe. And um, we, uh, there was, uh, she was in pain and we uh, were really kind of, I think many of us were shaken about that. When this is someone we loved, someone we cared about, and here she is uh, facing something very terrible. And, uh, you know, I, it made me think about what I would do if I was in Vicky's shoes. Like, what do, what do we, what do you, I don't know what you do. I don't know what, what I would do if I was in her shoes. But uh, I thought about how I could probably find myself in that place really getting, finding it easy to be angry at God. Like, kind of like, what's happening here, God? And, uh, I don't know what, what you do when opposition comes, when opposition comes in our life, when unexpected tragedy comes in our life, when, when we're doing the things that we feel like we're supposed to be doing because in one moment, Vicky was serving and worshiping and influence and the next moment she's in a hospital bed and can do nothing. And we can wonder where's God in, uh, in all of that. And I think the thing that I kept coming back to was And as I read this story, that whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, that we are in a fight, that this is a fight. And the early church here is in in a fight. And in every fight, there's opposition. And so let's look at our first uh, few verses here in our passage. It It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, 
the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So up to, up to this point, we've been working our way through Acts. Up to this point, uh, there's been severe religious persecution. And now the opposition intensifies. Because when Herod gets on board, Herod represents the political demographic. So now there just isn't religious persecution, but there's political persecution as well. And Jesus-loving Christians are being harmed. Violence was being done to them. James is murdered, likely beheaded. And James wasn't like some chump. Like he was like a pillar in the church. This is James. This is one of the disciples handpicked by Jesus. He was in the, the inner three right, that experienced the transfiguration. This is James, the son of thunder. That's who this James is. That's murdered. And Peter is taken into custody. And we should contemplate for a moment the reality of this suffering that God is allowing. Let's think about that for a moment. There is suffering that God is allowing. And I think this is a really hard point for us in our culture, in the way that we operate, because there is a prevalent message that is throughout our culture, that God loves you, which is true. That's a true statement. But we misapply it because then we say, therefore, we should not suffer. If God loves us, like Christians should be having the easiest, like most comfortable, most prosperous life that there is, except the only, there's a problem with that. If you look at Jesus, if you look at scriptures, if you read your Bible, nowhere does it promise that you will live a comfortable life? It does promise that you will be comforted. It does promise that you will be comforted, that you have a comforter in Christ and in God, which means that there is the reality that we, there is suffering, there is opposition, there is a fight to be had in this Life And Jesus tells us, he's, he invites us to take up our cross and die. That's his invitation. But the promise is, is that whoever follows him will lose his life. Sign me up. Who's signing up for that? No. But he says there will be hardship. There will be persecution. However, if you lose it here, you will gain it in heaven. If you lay down the pursuit to acquire the things that this world has to offer, if you can lay that down and you can make him Lord, yes, there will be suffering and persecution, but it will lead to life in its fullest and in the way that you most desire it. And it promises you, if you give your life to Christ, that you will have eternity in heaven with him. And so our story starts with Christians being harmed. We don't like to focus on this. We don't like to focus on the opposition. You know the story. You know what we love about a story like this? We love Peter being rescued. That's the story that we love. We love when things go well. We love when, uh, in, at the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people come to Christ. We love it when Jesus walks on water and calms. Those are the stories we love. But we we don't like this kind of stuff because this is this isn't easy. There's a struggle. James wasn't a guy who lost favor with God. God loved James, and James was beheaded. He was a pillar. This is God's man. Just as much 
as Peter was God's man. And it just made me think about this for him. It made me kind of realize as I read this story, man, James is God's man and Peter's God's man. One died, one was rescued. He saw, he's working sovereignly over both of those situations and over both of those lives. Peter is rescued in today's story, but there is another story that ends with him being crucified upside down. 11 of the 12 disciples, if you take in Matthias who replaced Judas, 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred. John was exiled. He's the only one that we know of who wasn't killed for his faith. And when we're surrounded by so much comfort, we can start to become numb to the present reality that you and I, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been enlisted and are engaged in a fight. We can become numb to the present warfare. We can become numb to the present urgency so much that when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, when opposition comes, we're taken off guard. When suffering comes crashing down around us, we were surprised. And a sign that this could be happening, this could be, because we kind of gravitate this way, is when a sign that this could be happening in us, and it's a sign that can be happening in myself, I find that when suffering comes, I'm not, and I'm not expecting a fight, I'm not expecting opposition, so then I'm surprised by suffering. And the questions I start asking are, where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? Don't you love me? How can this difficulty be a good thing? We start to question our God and our creator. We'll say things like, I know you have a point, but I don't see it, and I need to see it. We forget that we have not just been called into a new life. We have been enlisted to engage in a fight where there is good and evil, where there is light and dark. There is life and death, but not a physical life and death. There is an eternal life and death that hangs in the balance. God hasn't called us to be spoiled children who have it so easy that we can just invite everyone into this easy life. His promise is to be our comforter. His promise is to be with us. His promise is to empower us if we trust him. We go into war with him, Jesus, who gave his life on this earth. We say yes to God, and no matter where that leads us, we follow him, even if it means prison or death. That those who lose it here will gain it in heaven. His invitation for us is to exchange temporary, unfulfilling comfort for everlasting perfection with God. Perhaps, perhaps God's chief concern isn't our happiness. Perhaps his chief concern is our witness and our worship and our soul. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, then God has saved you, not for an easy life, but for a resurrected life. Let's live in the reality that there will be an opposition, that there will be opposition, but let's not let that opposition determine our course or discourage us from following. And so we have to ask the question, how do we fight? If there's a fight, how do we fight? It's not just living in the reality that there's opposition, but we gotta know how do we engage this fight. And so opposition rises against the church here in our story. The name of Jesus is under attack. And we all know that the best defense is a good offense. 
So the church doesn't change its tactics of advancement. It just intensifies them. They aren't picketing outside the gate. They aren't writing their senators. They aren't lobbying for laws to change. They aren't rounding up Christians to break Peter out of prison and overcome Herod's men. What is the church doing? They're praying. They're praying. The church goes to prayer. It says in verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And I want to talk about prayer, but I, gotta, I love how Peter isn't praying. I love that he's sleeping. Like the church is praying. The church is praying on his behalf. Peter is sleeping. The church is going to fight for him. The church is going to war for their brother. And sometimes God elevates our faith in prayer. And other times he elevates the faith of others to pray for us. The church has prayed before, but now it says that earnest prayer was being made. They were praying with fervency, with a deadline for a man who had an expiration tag around his neck. So on the one hand, you have the church praying around the clock every hour through the night even. Everyone else is sleeping. The church is praying. Darkness covers the city. It's quiet, but there's a house with the lights on where the church is giving unceasing, persistent prayers. The church isn't backing down from the fight. They aren't just being subject to the situation and the circumstance. They're going to war for Peter, and they're doing it with prayer. And where's Peter? So it says, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter is sleeping and snuggling. That's what he's doing. He dies tomorrow, but there isn't apparently a care in the world that could keep him up. I don't know if Luke intended this imagery when he wrote this passage, but Peter sleeping in the midst of all this chaos reminded me of Jesus sleeping in the bottom of the boat when the storm raged outside. Luke tells that same passage in his gospel, tells that story. And to me, what this does is it testifies to God's sovereignty in one hand and the church's free will participation in the other. In one hand, Peter is at rest and sleeping soundly with death at his doorstep. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be sleeping. However, he has come to understand that God is ruling and reigning and nothing that Herod does to the church or to him will change that truth. If he lives, then he gets to keep telling people about Jesus. And if he dies, then he gets to be reunited with Jesus. God is working all things out in order for Jesus to get the worship that he is due. In the other hand, the church is choosing to participate, choosing to pray, believing that God hears their prayers and having faith for him to answer their prayers. Not everyone is gathered. Notice this, not everyone is gathered, but it says in verse 12 that many were gathered. How would you like to be a part of the many that night? When we pray, we get to come alongside God and interact with him and witness him moving on our behalf 
in response to our prayers and we get to experience his faithfulness in a tangible, experiential way. The believers who chose to not go to Mary's house missed out on experiencing the sovereign hand of God at work that night. They missed out on something. Those who participated in that prayer that night experienced an incredible, amazing thing. Now they got to go and tell everyone else about it, but they got to experience it firsthand. And I like how Luke is regularly reminding us that the church and the Christians are just normal Christians, like normal people, normal fears, normal faith and throughout the book of Acts. I mean, we see that because here they are praying for Peter to be rescued. They're, I mean, they're like contending, oh God, you know, we've seen you perform miracles. We've seen you heal the sick. We've seen you raise the dead. Lord, rescue Peter from Herod's clutches. They're, they're contending and they're fighting and they're praying. In comes Rhoda, the servant girl. Um, guys, Peter's at the gate. That's impossible. Oh God, would you rescue Peter? Would you save him? They didn't believe her. She's like, Peter's at the door. They're like, no way. We know that's not possible. God, you're the God of the impossible. Would you? Come on, Lord. Just normal people, normal expectations. I mean, that's the beauty of it, God, is that we don't have to have like this faith that surpasses over everything. God takes what little we have and he's able to do anything that he wants to do. And he's not limited by anything. He's not limited by anyone. I mean, can you imagine the rejoicing that had to have happened in that house that night when they finally believed Rhoda and they went to the gate and they actually let him in and there he was standing in the flesh relaying to them how the angel of the Lord smacked him on the side, woke him up, let it, doors opening by themselves, stepping over sleeping guards. Can you imagine the worship that would have risen in that house that night? And it must have because Peter tells them to quiet down. He's probably still very aware that he could be recaptured. Like, he still has a bounty on his head. Peter needed rescuing. He needed divine intervention. He was shackled and enslaved and his clock was running out on his time here. And there are people, get this, there are people all around the city right now who are in that same situation, who are bound and shackled by their sin, who are a slave to darkness that God desires to rescue and set free. But what he's waiting on is he's waiting on his church to pray. We go to war for those we love and God is ready to act, but he has decided in his sovereign, loving heart to make us participate, participants in seeing his kingdom advanced. And he will save and he will set free. But there are things that he won't do until his church prays. When we have all church prayer at the end of this month, or when we gather for Wednesday morning prayer during the week, you know, we invite every time, we tell you how great it's gonna be, right? We stand up here and we encourage you to make it 
happen and come worship and come pray when we go to our city location and pray with our brothers and sisters. And, you know, just thinking about this, it just made me realize, like, I am not interested in getting anyone to another meeting. Like, that's not the point. Like, the point is not so that we can point, look, all right, I showed up, like, we, I got you to a meeting, and I need you to get to a meeting, so we, like, that's not the point, like, that's not the point. The point is not to get us to a place. The point is, the point is that we, if we pray, God will move. If we pray, God will move. We've seen it happen over and over and over again. And as I, as I thought of my own prayer life, as I thought of my own intentionality, as I thought of all the times that I wake up Wednesday morning at 5.30 and I think, I don't wanna go to prayer. If I think about all the times on Friday night when I'm like, man, I don't want, like I'm rounding up the kids and we're getting in the van and it's stressful and we're gonna be out past their bedtime and I know the night's gonna be hard, which means the morning's gonna be hard. Like those are the things that I'm thinking about and what I'm not thinking about oftentimes is what God wants to do and who he wants to save in light of his church coming together and praying. Like there is a bigger agenda. There are things that are more important in, that are happening right now, today, this very minute, this very hour, in our very city, there's all kinds of brokenness that God's wanting to rectify and bring light to. He's wanting us to go to war for them. He's wanting us to fight for them. He's wanting for us to contend in prayer for them. And our flesh does not want us to participate. So this is a fight. This is a fight to get there, and it's a fight to get in the But when we get there, I was talking to Wes McCutcheon uh, Wednesday morning. He comes. I'm talking about Wednesday, which is so everyone knows what I'm talking about. We, anyone's invited, we gather Wednesday mornings at Gateway House of Prayer in Lindbergh, and we pray from 6.30 to 7.20. And um, Wes was there Wednesday, and he just told me, he's like, man, I woke up today, and I did not want to come. And I got here, and I did not want to pray. And he said, but as everyone else worshiped and prayed, man, I just, my heart, like my, I just couldn't deny, like God's presence was here and there's people we're fighting for and we wanna see people saved and rescued and, he, and then he begins to pray and he begins to engage his heart. As this is like a, we're, we're engaged with the war and there's a war happening with us to make this a priority and to live in this truth not interested in getting us from meeting to meeting. That's like, that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that there are lives at stake and people that God wants to rescue and people that we need to pray for and contend for, who he will save, who he will save when we pray. And I, the thing that I see in Peter's situation, the thing that it, it speaks to me about his rescue is that there is no situation that there is no person too far off, too guarded by the enemy, too enslaved, that God can't reach down and rescue them. I believe that if you're looking for God, you will find him as you pray. As you seek, as you knock, he's gonna reveal himself to you as you pray. He promises to do it. And our, our passage starts with Herod persecuting the church and ends with an angel of the Lord striking him down. 
Perhaps, perhaps the same angel that woke Peter was the one who struck Herod down. And this is a security for those who believe and a warning for those who oppose. Because we serve a God who is good, but not safe. He is good, but he's not safe. And there is a fear and a reverence and a trembling that we have with our God in heaven who is ruling over every situation, who is holding everything together. And I think God was patient with Herod. I honestly think that God desired for Herod to repent and to turn to him because if his agenda was to strike Herod down, he could have done that at any time. He could have done that when he started violently harming Christians, men and women who believed in Jesus. He could have done that when, when Herod had James beheaded. He could have done it when Peter was arrested. But guys, if we don't soften our heart to see what God's doing, I mean, Herod in the face, he had 16 guards he had four, he had four, um, four garrisons, garris, uh, four garrisons, that's four soldiers. He had 16 guards watching Peter, two sleeping on both sides of him. There was probably a guard with a key to the gate that Peter walked out of that was still in his pocket when they woke up the next morning. I'm pretty sure that probably every one of those soldiers had the same uh, story for Herod. No, we went to sleep. We woke up. The chains are on the ground. The keys in my pocket. The doors are open and he's gone. And in the face of such overwhelming evidence of God's divine intervention, what does Herod do? He does not soften his heart. There's something greater at work in here. There's something greater, greater than what I can see and greater than me. No, he does. He hardens his heart and he executes the soldiers. I think God wanted Herod to turn. I think he wanted to have that moment and say, man, I am not God. But Herod was a man who sought self-worship, self-glorification. There was a moment that he was gonna have. Like it says that Peter, once he saw the crowd and the people celebrated James's death, he, that's why he took Peter and he was gonna make, he was gonna put it on display and he was gonna get all this glory and God robbed him of that glory because there's only one who is deserving of glory. So Herod moves on and there's another opportunity, another moment of glory. And it says in our text that the people were praising him. This is not, this is a God, not a man. And God has him struck down. God is slow to anger, not desiring any to perish. But that does not mean that we treat God with indifference. It doesn't mean that we do whatever we want and God doesn't care. There's plenty of stories in the New Testament under the new covenant where God does things that should cause us to pause and reflect and make sure that our heart is in line with what he's doing. Herod's death is a warning to those who stand proud and exalt themselves over God and seek the praise of people instead of seeking to praise the one who created them. We do not pray to a God who is not sufficient to save 
who is limited in any capacity. This is how the story ends. The story ends with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing and everyone praising the name of Jesus. And it is precisely because we know that because we know how the bigger story ends, which enables us to walk in confidence as we testify to his love and goodness and mercy and forgiveness. As there is a battle at hand, there is a war. And you know what? If, if, we, if, if you were in a battle, it would bring you great comfort to know that your side was going to have the victory. It causes a lot of stress when we're in a battle and we don't know how it's going to end. And so God is wanting us to know how the story ends. He's wanting to give us confidence. He's wanting to give us security. He wants us to know that the victory has already been secured. And he has given us a role and a purpose that's to fulfill his purpose, which is to spread the name of Jesus to every corner of the city and state and nation and beyond. I've seen people crippled and paralyzed by trying to answer the question, what's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of my life? Well, here, if you are in Christ, step one, you need to understand it's not your life. Like we are never going to find the answer internally within us because we have a creator who exists outside of us who made us for his purpose looking for what's my, my purpose. And I mean, it's just like, you're, gonna, you're going down a frustrated road. It's his life. And he does have a purpose for you. And his purpose looks like worshiping him, working in a way that honors him, loving people in a sacrificial way because he has loved you in a sacrificial way, being generous with our possessions because he has held nothing back from us. It's living a life of worship and praise to honor him, doing everything to honor him. That is why we exist. So we don't have to wait next month, next year. We don't have to wait for the clouds to part to see what it is that God's master plan or we can start today. We can start this out. We should start right away. And you know what? In everything we do, what the reason why I want to do it, the reason why I want to pray, the reason why I want to worship, the reason why I want to have high integrity at my workplace, and the reason why I want to serve my neighbor across the street, why is because I want to honor the name of Jesus because I want to worship him and I want my life to testify about him and who he is and his greatness and his love and that we have a savior in heaven who died for us so that I might get the opportunity to tell someone, to pray for someone, to see someone rescued that's a slave, that's enslaved to their sin. There is a war at hand and there are people who need to be rescued and there's going to be casualties along the way. There's gonna be heartache and there's gonna be injuries on the battlefield, but we must remember that God hasn't called us to a comfortable life. He's called us to a resurrected life. If you have forgotten that following Christ means to follow him into war, God wants to call you back to fight today. About a month ago, one of our members here at Kirkwood, uh, Chelsea Sell, shared a, a prophetic picture in our worship service. Some of you may remember but she saw this picture of a line of soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder and they were holding spears, but some of the soldiers were turned away from the battle. Like the battle was here and the line was facing it, but some were turned to the side. 
And in this picture, she saw like the commander coming down the line and hitting the spears of the soldiers, calling them to turn and face the battle that's in front of them. If you have forgotten that you have been created to be an ambassador of Christ, that you are called and qualified by God himself to be his witness, that you have been enlisted into a war, God wants to remind you of that today. He wants to remind you of the fight in front of you. And he has stories to give you. Let me tell you, you say yes, he has stories of his faithfulness. He has stories of Peter's being rescued to give to you that he's longing to pour out on his church so that we may continue to testify about his goodness. You have been created to fight in prayer. If you aren't praying, Start praying. Pray in the quiet of your room. Pray on your drive to work. Pray with us on Wednesday morning. Join with the church and pray at all church prayer Friday night, the last Friday of this month. Pray. Just start praying. There is no box that we contain it in, but what we can see that Jesus over and over, he himself goes to prayer. He teaches his disciples how to pray. He instructs them to pray, to pray in the quiet. They pray together. They pray because they have a part to play in this war, in this war contending for people to know him and to be saved by him. I mean, I don't know. Don't you want more of that? Like, don't you want, we're gonna, we're gonna have a baptism here today. Don't you want more baptisms? Like, praise God. Like, I love it. This is, this is why we do what we do, right? Is because we want to see people come to faith, follow Jesus, repent of their sin, and be baptized. That's what we want. To, we want people to know the freedom that they have in a God in heaven who loves them. We want to see that happen more and more and more. God wants his church to pray for it. Some of you may be worn out by the battle. You're aware that there's a battle and you are tired you're like, you, you need a vacation from your vacation. Like you are spent. But God is wanting to speak to you in prayer. Prayer is God's communication to us in the midst of the fight, in the midst of the opposition that will come. Whether it be external, whether it be internal, whatever it is, like there's opposition that will come. God wants to speak to you in prayer to remind you that he's with you, that he's never left you or forsaken you. You are not alone in this battle. And it's time we start fighting in a different way. Sometimes we fight in our own strength. I don't know about you, but my answer whenever there's difficulty is to get up and go, whatever, fix the problem. Like, I just need to fix something. Even if I can't fix the problem, I just gotta go do something. But when we operate like that in our walk with God, oftentimes we, we start doing things in our own strength. And, you know, I thought about David. Like, if David would have taken Saul's armor, you know that story? Saul offered his armor, armor to David and he went and he said, no, he struck, we, you know, we know the story, he struck Goliath down with stones. But I just thought if he would have taken Saul's armor in the battle, if he would have tried to do that in what he thought was like, this is the smart way. Like he's going into battle, right? He needs armor. He needs a sword. He's got to duke it out with this guy. And a lot of times that's what we do. Like we take Saul's armor. We try to do things in our own strength. And God will let us wear ourselves out 
so that he can show us there's a better way where we take off that armor that doesn't fit and we pick up stones and we put it in a sling and, he, and something happens that only God can make happen. He won't share his glory. He won't. He won't share his worship. It's to his name, it's to Jesus' name that every knee will bow. Let's stand and let's pray. That seems to be appropriate.